So now to Acts chapter 8, speaking of the Lord doing amazing things uh, in spite of of difficult circumstances. Uh, What I'd like to do tonight is actually read the last few verses from chapter 7, which we considered last week, uh, and then dive into chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at a pretty big portion and so I'm not going to read the whole portion and then, and then preach over it. I'm just going to read as we go. I'm going to do the first 24 verses of chapter 8 tonight. But I just want to begin by reading the last few so we can just remember where we are in the story. So Stephen is, is, has been put on trial for his, his faith. And he is the, is the first Christian martyr, the first man killed for his faith in Jesus. And we read in chapter 7 verse 58, that when they drove him, as Stephen, out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen, and he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Just bow your head with me one more time. Jesus, I pray... Lord, we, we thank you for, for you, Lord. I, I just want to begin tonight by, by shedding anything that is clinging on to us from, from life and the million different things that can trouble us, all the travail, all the confusion, all the hard, all the hard stuff, the, the depressions, the anxieties, the disappointments. Jesus, may you... At this, at this time, just give us a clear, a clear mind. Calm our souls, calm our hearts. May we be given an attitude and a posture of reverence and to eagerly listen for what it is that you would have to say to us. Lord, I, I pray that you might surprise us, that, that, this, that this next 45 minutes or so would be a real time of refreshing um, spirit, that you, would, that you would just communicate to us what it is that you, that you know that we need whether it's correction um, or comfort. Lord, we trust you with all things. And so it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So Stephen has just been killed. And the men who are killing him lay their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we pick up in chapter 8. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women and delivering them into prison. I want to pause just right here in these first few verses because as I was, as I was praying over this text um, this afternoon and just sort of like putting away the commentaries, putting away the books and just, and just getting alone with the Bible and with the Lord and, and I do this, you know, Lord, what is, what's here that I'm just not seeing? What it, you know, the, and it's not because it's hard to find, it's just because I'm, I'm a little dim, you know? And so I try, to just, I try to just get alone in prayer, and it became very clear to me very quickly that what, we're, what we just read over would be very easy to do just that, to just read over and to move on to the action and to what happens next in the story. But I want us to pause and consider these three verses because there's a lot to, there's a lot to, there's a lot to chew on right here. There's a lot of big things right here just in these few verses. Stephen is killed, 
and the church is scattered. And, and right there we think, well, this is, a, this, is a, what, this is a terrible thing. What a waste, right? What a waste. The death, the murder of a young man. You know, if he had just kept his mouth shut, he would have been fine. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he would have lived. If he had just kept his mouth shut, he could have gone on his, his happy-go-lucky way and nobody would have bothered him anymore. But he preached the gospel and he pointed his fingers at the Pharisees and he told them of their sin and they killed him for it. And this, this broke out into persecution. This, this guy Saul starts ravaging the church and there's this spreading. Everybody's scattered out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding areas. So a young man is killed. He's murdered. And then the church in Jerusalem is disbanded. They disappear. They go away. And, we could, and you read that and it's like, well, why are we doing this? What is the point of all of this? And what I love about this is that it's just an indication. It shows us. It's a perfectly good example of what God does. God using what is awful to accomplish what is awesome. And what is, what is so, his ability to do that and his consistency in doing that and his heart for doing that, using what is awful and turning it into the very thing that creates something that is awesome, his ability to do that is astounding. And my prayer is that, it would, that his ability and willingness to do that consistently over and over and over again would give us hearts of worship, would give us hearts of reverence, would give us hearts of trust, would give us hearts of affection and love for the Jesus who went to the cross and died for our sins, turning death on its head and then using his death to defeat death. So nothing can be used against us. We're invincible. We are immortal because of the life of Jesus Christ. And even whenever Satan comes in and tries to stomp on the church, it just progresses. If you want some fun little alliteration thing, Paul starts persecuting what is powerful and it only proliferates. The church is powerful. The Holy Spirit is powerful. God is powerful. And I heard one, I heard one pastor say it like this. The, 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 the Pharisees came in and they, it's like they started stomping on a campfire. And they might, have, they might have put it out, but all these little embers floated up and started fires everywhere else. You persecute what is powerful, that is the gospel. You persecute what is powerful, that is the name of Jesus Christ. And it, the name of Jesus Christ, the church, the gospel will only spread. The gospel didn't spread because it was popular. You know, if you wanna sell a lot of books, if you wanna sell a lot of music, if you wanna sell your art or whatever it is that you produce, people have to like it. They have to like it enough to give it their attention. They have to like it enough to spend money on it and give their time to it. And for the gospel, for many people, that was true. The gospel came into people's lives. Jesus changed their heart. The God, the Spirit, regenerated them, turned their heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and they were born again, given eternal life, given a righteousness that is alien to us, that is Jesus's, but it is given to us as a gift. That did happen, but just as much as that happened, if not more, people tried to kill the church. They persecuted it. And it's interesting, this guy Saul, who's persecuting the church, why does he care? You know, if you, take the, if you take the time to consider who this guy Saul is, you, you start to wonder why is he giving his time and attention to this church that, you know, it's growing, but is it really that big of a deal? He's ravaging the church. That word ravaging in verse 3 is only used here in the, in the New Testament. And it's actually in, in extra-biblical literature, that same word is used to describe a wild boar Goring on a human, goring a human corpse, just eviscerating the human corpse. Paul was rabid with hate. 
But why? So I keep saying Paul, Saul, he later becomes the apostle Paul. But Saul of Tarsus was a young man, and it's, it's actually a fascinating thing to consider and, and, to, and to wonder about. Your imagination can really run, run wild, because we're told in history that he was, he was born right about the same time as Jesus, within a few years before or after Jesus was born. He was born uh, in Tarsus, which was a cosmopolitan. It had a huge university, high, a lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of business, a lot of influence, a lot of culture, a lot of things for a young man to, to sharpen and edge his mind on. And he was a brilliant young man. He took up the trade of tent making. Uh, and we know from uh, Acts chapter 22 that he was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He likely went to Jerusalem about the age 13 or 14 and started studying at the feet of Gamaliel. And if you pause and think, man, if, if this guy's Saul of Tarsus, I'm just making this up, but you just wonder, like, if, if Saul went to Jerusalem to study at about the age of 13 or 14, we know that Jesus was in the temple when he was 12. And then every year he went to the temple for the feasts. I wonder if Paul and Jesus ever crossed paths. It's just a fascinating idea. You know, he was there. He, he knew what was going on. He, he earned the equivalent of two PhDs, plus he had a trade. He was the leader. He was the man. He was the, he was the golden boy. He was the rising star in the sect of the Pharisees. And with all that education, with all that power, and with all that influence, and with all that control, and all these guys looking up to him and thinking that, man, this is my boy, this is the guy, this is the future of our movement, this is the future of the, of, of the Pharisee group, he's paying so much attention to the church because it's powerful, because the name of Jesus is powerful. And all of the things that he could have spent his time doing, all of the things that he could have been influencing, all of the people that he could have been musing with and, fill, and, and, and doing his philosophy stuff with and his theological studies with, he spends his time persecuting the church because it's powerful. The church is powerful. The Lord is building his church. The Lord is building his kingdom even here on earth, here and now. He told Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And at this moment in time, Saul is an agent of hell persecuting the church and he doesn't defeat the church. The Holy Spirit defeats him in his persecution of the church. But I just think it's amazing that of all the things Saul could have been doing, he's persecuting the church because the church is serious. It's serious. The Holy Spirit is serious. The name of Jesus provokes us. It provoked Paul. And so he spent his time and attention on what he calls the way, the Christian movement, the church in Jerusalem, and he ravages it. He spent, the, the gospel of Jesus was living in Saul's head rent-free. It was driving him nuts because it's powerful. And so people scattered, verse 4. And this is, this is what the Lord does. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. And we're told that they went into Judea and Samaria in, in verse 1. And this is, this is the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And here, how did, how did that happen? Well, it happened by Stephen getting killed. It happened by somebody trying to squash the church, trying to stomp on that campfire, and the embers went forth. Did not destroy the church, but made it bigger. Did not hurt the church, but actually proliferated the church. So all of these people infused with God the Spirit, made alive by the gospel, with Jesus' life and righteousness dwelling in them, go out into Judea 
and into Samaria. Ravaged and savage as he may, Paul is failing already. They were proclaiming the news of the word. And now Philip, verse 5, went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs that he was doing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed, and so there was great joy in that city. Now this is a, this is a part of the Bible that we, we read it right, we read right over it, and we don't really understand what's happening, but the very first readers of this, and the people who are living, in, actually living in this, in this environment in real time, are stunned by this, because Philip, one of the deacons from chapter 7, in scattering, going away from Jerusalem because of the persecution, goes into Samaria, about 40 miles north. And when you read that, Luke intended for people to go, ugh, seriously. Samaria? Gross. Because the Jews and the Samaritans did not like each other. They did not get along with each other. And we've talked about this before, but it it bears repeating that when, when Israel was split into two kingdoms, After the time of King Saul, David, and Solomon, ten tribes became the northern kingdom and two tribes became the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was wiped out in 722 by the Assyrians. And they were taken off into captivity, but there was a remnant of Israel in the the northern territory that remained there. And they intermarried with, with, with pagans and with foreigners and had offspring that were now no longer pure Jewish line. They were no longer, they're, they're, their DNA was now diluted, they would, they would think of it. Their lineage had been tampered with and tainted with these foreign people. And when the, the southern kingdom likewise was taken out in 586 BC by Babylon, and after 70 years in captivity, those who were in the southern kingdom came back to rebuild their temple. You can read about this in the book of Ezra. They came back to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, and some of these people from the north came and asked if they could help rebuild the temple and the, the still the pure bloods in the south said no we hate you you smell funny go away you have no part in rebuilding the temple and so this this racist ugly bitter feud began and it carried right up into the time of Jesus and right up into the time of the early church but Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility Jesus destroyed tribalism and and this idea of of ethnic pride and I am somebody because of my bloodline and and my tribe is better than your tribe Jesus wiped all of that off the table he died for everybody because we all need a savior at the foot of the cross we are all absolutely equally zero we need Jesus and so the dividing wall of hostility is being broken down and Philip is going into Samaria to spread the good news of the gospel And so verse 9, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, and he was claiming to be somebody great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astounded them with his magical arts. But when they believed Philip... Proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. So here we have this character, Simon, and we're going to consider him to some depth tonight. But first, I just want to point out that Simon, Simon has some sort of influence. He has some sort of magical powers. And I, I don't know. There's a lot of debate. Did, did he actually have miraculous powers that were demonic? 
uh, like uh, Pharaoh's magicians did uh, in the book of Exodus. They actually had some sort of power to do some miraculous stuff. Or was he just sort of sleight of hand doing some trick of the eye stuff? We, we don't know, but he was so influential, he was so powerful that from the smallest to the greatest, people were believing in him, believing that he was somebody great. So whatever it was that he was doing was tremendously powerful, tremendously, uh, was tremendous, tremendously influential, so much so that people actually believed his own claims about what he, the claims that he made of himself. It says in verse 9 that he claimed to be somebody great, and people believed him. And that's interesting if you consider in John chapter 8, some of the religious leaders are kind of in a fight with Jesus, trying to discredit him. And one of the things that they throw at Jesus is, you are not legit because you're making claims about yourself. And that doesn't mean anything. If you boast about yourself, nobody cares. You have to, have, you have to be verified. You have to be from a certain school. You have to have the, the letters behind your name. You have to come from a certain accreditation. We don't care who you are. We don't know you. But some, whatever Simon had going on was convincing enough that people were like, oh, you know, he says he's someone cool and he's doing some cool stuff, so I guess we'll just take his word for it. He was winning people over, but more so, as influential as he was, as powerful as he was, whatever it was that he was doing, the true power of the Holy Spirit shows up and outshines whatever Simon has going on by a long shot. And people start turning to Philip. They saw the signs that he was doing Unclean spirits cast out, people who were lame and who were paralyzed are healed, and there's great joy that's unraveling in the city. Whatever Simon had going on, what Jesus has going on is way better, and people start taking notice. And so verse 13, even Simon believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly astounded. I want to take a second. So Simon, Simon believed something. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But it says that Simon believed and he was baptized, but that he was constantly astounded by the miracles that he was seeing. And, and that's not always a good place to start. It's not always the best place to start. It's easy, it's easy to miss. I, I, I listened to a pastor preaching on this, and he said, if you've ever been around a small child and you point to something you're like hey look at this oftentimes most of the time what happens is that that the kid will actually look at your hand and not at what you're pointing to and I actually tried this with Ella my five-month-old daughter the sun was coming up and we have this we have this east-facing window in our living room and it was a beautiful sunrise and and we were sitting on the couch together and I pointed at the sunrise and I said Ella look at the sun and she was looking at my hand and I moved my hand and her eyes followed it. And I was like, no, 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 no. Look at, what, look at what my hand is pointing to. Forget about my hand. Look at what my hand is pointing to. And that's what miracles are. Miracles are intended to point to something beyond them. They're a finger. They're a signpost. They're a sign signifying something greater and better than themselves. That is the person, Jesus Christ. And Simon is seeing things, and he's astounded but it seems as if he's just looking at the hand. He's looking at the hand. He's not looking at what the hand is pointing to. He sees the sign, but he isn't paying attention to what the sign is signifying. And it seems as if he might be stuck there. But he believes. He believes something, and he is baptized. In verse 14, and now the apostles 
in, when, in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to stop again real quick. Peter and John who were in Jerusalem, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, a whole bunch of other people scattered all over the place. Philip lands in Samaria, starts preaching the gospel. It seems to be taking hold. And so Peter and John are sent to Samaria to check it out. And I love this because they get there. Verse 15, they, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. That's awesome because John has a brother named James. And there's a story in Luke's gospel of some Samaritans that... John and James get mad at and they turn to Jesus and they say can we please pray that fire from heaven would come down and burn these fools and Jesus says stop stop be quiet but now John is going to Samaria to pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit has your heart experienced that kind of change you know this dividing wall of hostility this this ugly racism this sin of racism that is deep in the human spirit that's putrid and awful and goes all the way back through history, John has had a change. The gospel has changed him. He doesn't no longer, he does no longer sees these Samaritans, these people who are other. He's going there praying for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And even as, and we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts and we're going to consider it even more tonight, that even still this was difficult for them. And I, and, I, and I believe that that's why they, that's what happens here. What we read about in these next couple of verses is, is them having their own minds formed and their hearts changed as they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come onto these Samaritans. Verse, six, for he had not, verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, and they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I want to take some time and, and camp out right here because this is a confusing verse. It can be, it can seem kind of weird. I think, I think it is. I think it is kind of weird. But people have taken this verse and claimed that from it we have proof that you get saved and then after you get saved you need a second dose of the Holy Spirit to have power, to have miraculous power, to speak in tongues, to raise people from the dead, to prophesy or some sort of thing like that. Uh, and that if you don't, it's because you don't have enough faith. Have you ever heard people say that? If you don't speak in tongues, if you can't speak in tongues, it's because you're not saved. If you can't speak in tongues, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you can't rid yourself of some ailment, or if you come under the, under the, under the burden of some illness, it's because you don't have enough faith, and it's your fault. You need to pray harder. You need to worship harder. You need to read more. You need to be more disciplined. There's some, there's some hidden sin that you're, that you're not confessing, and that's why this is happening to you. And they use this text to say that. Um, but it does posit the question, I mean, is that, is that true? Is that, what, is that what is going on here? And, and my suggestion is that this is, that what's occurring here isn't normative or to be expected to consistently occur throughout the course of church history. I, and I want to begin dismantling that by the laying on of hands in baptism. Are those required for the Holy Spirit to come upon a person? Is, is, the laying upon of, is the laying of hands in baptism necessary for salvation? 
necessary, requ required for speaking in tongues and for prophecy and for, and for all the different manifestations of power that we're reading about, the lame being healed and demons being cast out? Is it required that someone lays their hand on you? Is it required that you be baptized? And I would, I would say that the answer is no, based on what Scripture says to us. In chapter 2, at Pentecost, nobody laid hands on the 120 who all of a sudden are given power to speak in tongues. Philip doesn't lay hands on the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, verses 36 through 39. In fact, the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith and then is baptized. There's no laying on of hands. In chapter 10, verse 44 and following, we read these words. This is another instance of the gospel going to a people group that Peter's got a problem with. But we read this. It says that while he was still speaking these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the word. And all of the Jewish believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And they were hearing them speak with tongues and magnifying God. And Peter answered, can anyone refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? That is the Jews, just as the Jewish people did. Can we refuse them water? Again, there's no laying of hands. Baptism occurs after the fact. Chapter 16, I'm going there. We're going to do this the long, hard way. Chapter 16, we read this. Did I just lose my marker? That's okay. Chapter 16 and verse 30, we read, this is the Philippian jailer. He cries out, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and all of your household. There's no laying on of hands, just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and together with all who were in his household and he took him at that very hour of the night and he washed their wounds and immediately then he was baptized along with his household. Baptism came after the fact. But... In chapter 19, Paul runs across some guys who were disciples of John the Baptist, and he did lay hands on them. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul laid his hands upon them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying, speaking in tongues and prophesying, speaking in tongues people being healed of their diseases, people being healed of their debilitating diseases. But it kind of just happens differently every single time. I mean, for goodness sakes, in John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is not to be wielded with some sort of force power. It's not like we can, we can, we can put him into a corner and force him to do something because we do some sort of ritual or seance. It's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is God. He does what he does. Notice in verse 16, again, it's so easy to read over, but this is, this, is, this is Orthodox Christianity. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a people like you and I are. He's not a human being, but he's a person. He has a personality. He can be grieved. He can be hurt. He can be lied to. He can influence. He can speak. He can do things. He's a, he's a, he's a person. We worship a 
God, who is Trinity, three persons in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. They are three distinct individual persons that make up mysteriously one God. The math doesn't work out in our heads. Don't even try. But that's what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit is a person. He had not fallen on them. And he can't be forced. The laying on of hands... It can happen. It's not required. Baptism, we're commanded to do it, but it's not required for salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul actually says, I am thankful that I did not baptize that many of you. Because everyone's running around saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was, they were turning it into this like, I've got a gold medal and you have a silver medal. It's like, it's better to be baptized by Paul than it is Apollos. Paul's like, I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you. That's a really weird thing to say if baptism is required for repentance or for salvation. And I don't know what happened to the thief on the cross. They didn't let him down to get baptized. There's nothing that we add to the work of Jesus. We're commanded to be baptized. It's, it's something to do in obedience. But it's not required for salvation. The laying on of hands is not required. So what is going on here? What is actually happening? Why are these Samaritans... Not, they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they haven't, the Holy Spirit hasn't fallen on them yet. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this. Some people say, well, the, Samarit- the, the Samaritans weren't saved. That's why. Until Peter and John came and laid hands on them, they actually were not saved. And the reasons for this is verse 12, it says that they believed Philip proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God. They didn't actually believe the gospel. They didn't actually believe in Jesus, but they believed Philip. They believed something that he said. This is the argument. They believed, that they believed in Philip. So it wasn't an actual authentic faith. It was, a, it was a faith that was spurious and it was false. Because they believed Philip, they didn't believe in Jesus. And they say, well, verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And hey, I mean, look at what happens to him. He tries to buy the Holy Spirit with money. He's way off. Peter says to him, you're in the gall of bitterness. Your heart is not right before God. You have no part or portion in this matter, verse 21. And people say, hey, if that guy, who's not even a Christian, believed then what did, what did they believe? What did the Samaritans believe? There's no way. Verse 17 means that they didn't have the Holy Spirit at all. They began laying their hands on them, and so they received the Holy Spirit. And so people say, see, they didn't have the Holy Spirit, so they weren't saved because Romans 8, 9, Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, so they don't have the Spirit. They believe something, but we don't know what it was. They weren't saved. That's the answer to the question. That's what some people say. There's other people that say, no, 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 no. Now, this is like the lecture part of the, the, part of the, part of the sermon. This is the stuff that we just, we've got to get through because it's here in the text. We need to understand this. This is good for, for biblical literacy. And I know that when we get into this kind of stuff, the temptation is just kind of like roll your eyes and stop paying attention. But this is, this is, what, this is, the, this is the difference between Orthodox Christianity and false beliefs. And so we have to hit it head on. Some people say the Samaritans in this case were not authentic believers. That's what's going on. And then there's some that say, no, they actually are authentic believers. And one of their arguments is this. It says in verse 6 that the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was being said by Philip. That term giving attention or giving heed is the same language that we see in chapter 16. Paul is preaching And there's a woman named Lydia who, it says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was being taught. And so the argument is, well, if the Samaritans are giving heed, 
and the woman in chapter 16, her heart was opened by the Lord to give heed, then the Lord opened their heart. They gave heed. They paid attention to what was being said. And this term, give heed, actually means, the word in Greek means to hold on to, to cleave to, or even it means even to be addicted to. It's the thing that you give your time to, your thought to, your effort towards. You take heed of something. You grab a hold of it. So they had to have been saved. And verse 8 says that they were rejoicing. The city was full of rejoicing. And the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, in verse 39, is described as going on his way rejoicing. So, hey, there's the fruit of the Spirit. The Samaritans took heed of what was being said. They're rejoicing. And they believed, this is the other argument, they didn't believe in Philip. They believed what Philip was proclaiming. They believed what he was saying. He was preaching the gospel, and that is what they believed. He was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and so they were being baptized, both men and women. They didn't believe, as the others say, they, don't, they didn't believe in Philip. They believed in what Philip was preaching. And finally, their fourth argument, they were baptized in the name of Jesus in verse 12, but then whenever Peter and John came and laid hands on them, they didn't get baptized again. It's not like they got baptized into the false belief or false faith or false idea and then fixed it, which is actually what we see in chapter 19. The followers of John the Baptist who had been baptized in John's baptism are then baptized in the name of Jesus. So they were saved. They weren't baptized again. They actually were saved. Were they saved? Were they not saved? This is the argument. And now I'm going to, I think when we read the Bible in its complexity and in its entirety, I think what's happening here, again, is not something normative or to be expected. I think that I, I think what, what Scripture is teaching us, I don't want to say I think, what, what Scripture is teaching us here is that as the gospel of Jesus Christ made its way out of Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria, the enemies of the people of Jerusalem, and then into Gentile territories, which we'll consider when we get to chapter 10, that there is a special anointing that took place, that there were special movements of power, and the apostles needed to see it. They heard that the Samaritans had received the gospel. And they went up there and they laid their hands on them. And Peter and John for themselves as the leaders of the church went, oh, this is actually happening. I can't believe it. This, this racist problem, this, this ethnic problem, this, this I hate you problem, the hate problem, had to be done away with. And so there's these special moments where this kind of thing happens. And, and you see this, you see this, listen to what, listen to what Peter says. In, in chapter 10, Peter had such a hard time with this. You know, I read the scriptures and I like Peter, but Peter had a race problem. He really did. When you get to chapter 10, Peter has this vision and he has it three times. Three times the Lord has to tell him, do not call unclean what I have said is clean. Now go to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius was a Gentile. And you read chapter 10. Go home and read Acts chapter 10. Peter drags his feet the whole way. The Holy Spirit tells him explicitly, go to this guy's house and preach the gospel to him. And Peter's like, dang it, fine. He's got a bad attitude, but he does it. He does it. He, he preaches the gospel, and he's astounded. All of the circumcised believers, that's all of the Jews, chapter 10, verse 45, all of the circumcised believers who came with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. The gospel really is for everyone. 
and it's been confirmed by the leaders of the church. They were, they became, they were believers, their hearts were, they were born again, their heart of stone was replaced with a heart of flesh, they were filled up with God the Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. They began to actually manifest power. Now check this out. In chapter 11, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came to Jerusalem, those who, those, the Jews who were there took issue with him. So Peter comes back from proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, and the believers in Jerusalem have beef with him for doing that. They were saying to him, chapter 11, verse 3, they were saying to him, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? That's their way of saying, you went to a Gentile's house and had dinner. Are you serious? But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in an orderly sequence everything that had happened. He told them everything that took place in chapter 10. And in chapter 11, I'm trying to find exactly where the verse is. Verse 15. And as I began to speak, this is him retelling the story, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he fell upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the, of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could prevent God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well then, God has actually granted to the Gentiles also this repentance that leads to life. They could not believe it. You mean to tell me that Samaritans have believed in Jesus, have received the gospel? Yeah, right. They go up there and they lay their hands on them personally and the Holy Spirit falls on them. The laying of hands is not required. Baptism is not required, but I, my conviction is that this was the gospel going forth into new territory, into new people groups, and saved as they were, the, the, uh, the, the, the apostles and all of the Jews, there was, this, there, was, there was territorial beef, there was racism. And it's this, we see this today. We see this today. I don't, wanna, I don't want to have anything to do with those Trump supporters. I don't want to have anything to do with those Biden supporters. I don't want to have anything to do with, you know, fill in the blank. Fill in whatever beef we have. We're still fighting the same problem, whether it's racism or tribalism or some, some form of the problem. Humans have a hate problem. That's the problem. We have a sin problem manifesting itself in hate. And these disciples are astounded. I mean, all those verses we just read, they cannot believe that the gospel can actually go forth to these other people. But Jesus loves them. He loves those people. Peter, do not call anything unclean that I have said is clean. Jesus doesn't have a racism problem. He's bringing down the dividing wall of hostility. And that was a work that really took these guys a long time to do. Even after this, even after chapter 8, we have chapter 10. Peter's struggling with this. And then after that, we have the book of Galatians where Paul calls Peter out for a racism problem. Peter had a problem. And Jesus is working in spite of it. And these guys lay their hands on the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit falls on them and there's some manifestation of power because Simon sees it and says, wow, I want that. Verse 18, and when Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. 
saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want to just say one last thing. We've, we've talked about this a lot. God the Spirit, being a person, can do whatever he wants, but he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be forced. You cannot demand of him. You can expect him to move. You can desire the gifts of the Spirit. We're told to. They're good things. We can pray for healing. We can pray for, for, the, for the physical healing, for societal healing, for cultural healing. We can pray for people who are sick, people who are, we want to come to the Lord. We can pray for all that. God the Spirit moves. He does. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. The takeaway here is that he cannot be bought and he cannot be forced. He cannot be manipulated. He is a person. He is, he is God the Spirit. And so expecting that he will move and hoping that he will move and desiring for him to move are good. We're called to do that. He is listening. He is moving. I mean, look at the church. It's being beat up and it's only growing because God the Spirit is still, is still moving. The name of Jesus is still powerful. The Holy Spirit is pointing to salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And so Simon is all twisted. He wants the power. He offers them money, saying, give me this authority as well. Everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you suppose that you could obtain the gift of God with money. Simon sees power. What does he see? Well, speaking in tongues, miracles, the lame being healed, demons being cast out. But he's not interested in Jesus. And he's not interested in telling people about Jesus. He's interested in adding to his magical bag of tricks, whatever it was that he had, to bolster his reputation up even more. He's looking for some, he's, he's self-serving. He wants the tricks. He wants the power. He wants the finger that can do all of these cool things, but he doesn't care about Jesus. It doesn't seem like at this point he has any concern for the actual resurrected Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Peter literally, sells, literally tells him, you and your money can go to hell. You have no part, verse 21, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. What does Jesus say in Matthew 19? With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Even here, Simon can repent. Repentance is available because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So in closing, verse 24, you know, there's people who, who read verse 24 and they interpret it as Simon's being sarcastic, that, that his tone is something akin to, why don't, you, why don't you pray for me? You pray for me to your God so that I get out of trouble, but I don't, I just, screw you. I just, this is what I, I, I want the stuff. If you're not going to give it to me, fine. You, you and your prayers can go take a hike. And there's other people that read this and they say, no, Simon is repenting. He acted in ignorance. He didn't know what was going on. And you know what, friends? I, I don't know. 
I don't know. There's, there's people who take verse 24 and, man, they get into squabbles about it. He was saved. No, he wasn't. Yes, he was. No, he wasn't. It's not, I don't think it's for us to decide. I don't think that we're being called to judge where Simon was here. But what we are to pay attention to is that God the Spirit is trustworthy and he's moving even when things don't work out in our favor, you know? He's doing good stuff. He's doing real stuff. And we, we might pray for a healing or for someone to get out of the hospital or for something and it doesn't work out the way that we want. It doesn't mean that he's not paying attention. And the opening section here, the opening verses of chapter 8 are just a reminder that even in the midst of turmoil, I mean, in the midst of a murder, God is so good and he's, in, and he's so in control that not only can he use the murder of Stephen to actually benefit the church, but he welcomes Stephen home. Stephen's in heaven. And there was lamenting. They buried him and they cried. And we can cry. Things hurt. Life is hard. I know that it's true. I was just talking with a guy earlier, right before, right before the service, about just this malaise that life can be. It can be hard, but this is, why we have to, this is why we have to renew our minds daily. This is the God who is in control. Anybody, I say this a lot, anybody, and maybe everybody did look at Jesus hanging on the cross and go, well, never mind. Remember Luke chapter 24, the two, the two fellas walking onto the road, road to Emmaus, Jesus shows up. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say, oh, man, Jesus, we thought, we thought he was the one. We thought he was the one, but he's dead. No, he's not. He defeated death. And he can use even a situation like this, not only for the good of the, of the church and for his purposes and for the kingdom of God, but for individuals themselves. He's working for our good. He is to be trusted. He absolutely loves you. Do you know him? Do you trust him? All of the, all of the, the technicalities in, in chapters like this, the Samaritans, the beef between the Jews and the Gentiles and all, all of that stuff, Jesus loves you. His spirit is working. Do you trust him? Even, even at times like this, well, G Stephen's dead and the church has been liquidated. Do you trust him? Because it, had, it wasn't liquidated. It just got way bigger and fulfilled what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. It's beautiful. It's incredible. He's trustworthy. Do you trust him? He died on a cross to save you from the penalty of your sins. He who knew no sin became sin. He's proven to us that he is trustworthy so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you trust him? He's worth trusting. He's trustworthy. He's perfect. He's good. Amen?